Welcome to the Therapy Evolved Podcast, where we discuss integrating primitive virtues into the context of a modern world. Hello, everybody. This is your host, Ken Knight, with Therapy Evolved. So, this is our first episode, and I am going to spend it letting you guys know what you can expect, and what my background is, why I want to do what it is that you can expect, and what future episodes are going to look like. So, I guess let's hop right in. Therapy Evolved. What is this podcast about anyway? So, this podcast is about the improvement of physical, cognitive, emotional, social, and financial performance. The reason why evolution is a prominent theme of that is because evolution explains how we came to behave, think, and feel the way that we do, and it's the most measured theory that we have today to explain behavior of all creatures and nature, ourselves included. So, moving forward with this podcast, it's going to be very action-oriented. And all of these actions, if you remember a moment ago, we said our goals are to improve physical, cognitive, emotional, social, and financial health. These three core assumptions are behind every action we're going to discuss to do so. So assumption one, emotions are expressions of body chemistry. That is, if you have enough of one chemical, you feel anxious. If you have a deficit of some chemicals, you feel depressed. If you have an excess of one chemical, you feel angry, and so on and so forth. Um, We will be getting into some of the specifics, but I'm not a neuroscientist by trade, and I'm going to try my best to avoid putting everybody to sleep with too much detail. So, assumption one, emotions are expressions of body chemistry. Assumption two, Body chemistry can be predictably changed through consistent action. If I eat a certain way, sleep at certain times for certain amounts, under certain lighting conditions, um, if I move my body consistently in certain ways, if I do certain patterns of thinking, if I engage in certain exercises of the mind, such as uh, cognition retention or puzzle solving, or meditation, these will all have effects on my lasting body and brain chemistry, okay? And the third assumption is that these changes can bring forth optimal human performance and greater expressed emotions of well-being, okay? So, what is information if you can't use it to do something good? So, I'll read this again. These changes are intended to bring forth optimal human performance and greater expressed emotions of well-being. We could all use more of that, no matter how much we think we have or don't. So, moving forward with those three assumptions, that is going to be the driving force behind everything moving forward. Okay. So, this is an ambitious topic, and Who could say whether or not any one person is qualified to really do this wealth of topic 
all the justice it deserves. But I'm going to try. And so what I'm going to do next is explain a little bit about my background. And maybe that can sort of offer some perspective about how I came to some of this information. And we can kind of get an early look into this idea of a living laboratory concept. Okay. So at age 17, I joined the Army. Um, I got a good taste of what it was like to get cold, to get hot, to get wet, to get yelled at, to get beaten up, to um, be tired, to do um, acts of considerable endurance, to be scared, to um, engage in operations under little to no sleep for many days on end, minimal resources, lots of complications, and then you throw in the um, Operation Iraqi Freedom. And as you can see, I got to really experience the entire gauntlet of human emotion in their extremes, uh, among myself, among peers in the military, and among civilians in the environment of Iraq. Okay. At that time, I got incredibly interested in the topic of human emotion and how human emotion works and how, even though um, by outside standards, someone's life might look incredibly difficult, that didn't seem to stop them from being happy. And then if you look at someone who, by all means, through most outside observations, seems to have it pretty easy, would often not be happy. And at this time, I didn't have any formal education in psychology or anything of the like. It was just a curious thing to note over the couple years I spent out there. And so I did my time with the military, put in my eight years, um, got through my bachelor's degree, and then I decided, you know what, let me do something a little bit crazy with college out the way, with um, the military out the way. And I flew over to Thailand and spent about six months kickboxing out there in the local Muay Thai discipline um, in a town called Chalong next to Phuket, Thailand. Here was another staggering example of people who could beat each other bloody um, could undergo excruciating, grueling training regimens and be incredibly happy, incredibly kind, incredibly relaxed at all moments they weren't currently in the ring. And what I discovered was that, in many ways, regular exposure to controlled amounts of discomfort actually improved my state of happiness and well-being. And I got the similar, a similar story from everybody I would ask about this topic. Uh, so through miles and miles of running in 120 degree Fahrenheit heat, through um, kicking heavy packed sandbags and tires hung from chains and um, engaging in elbows, knees, uh, low kicks, gut kicks, punches, throws, clinches, exhausting, painful stuff. When you overcome these challenges, you feel really good after. And another thing I experienced um, throughout the military, and especially through this brief kickboxing career, is that when you accustom yourself to a certain level of discomfort, 
your tendency to experience great discomfort diminishes heavily to lesser stresses, stressors. So if you're somebody who's used to getting elbowed in the face two, three times a week, you generally don't freak out when someone cuts you off in traffic. Pretty curious. Now, this set me along to where I got pretty curious about all these ideas, you know, happiness, emotion, the relationship between contained discomfort and resistance to unhappiness. And what I did from here was I put in time as a fitness trainer. I got my training at Southeastern, uh, Louisiana University, which is in Hammond, Louisiana. Um, and I started to explore this idea further. And I briefly worked in a juvenile detention center where I got to see just a, a lot of unhappiness. And it was here that I first met uh, I met my first counselor who was working with some of the population. And I learned about this field where your objective as a counselor would be to establish a strong rapport with somebody who really needed compassionate, knowledgeable interaction and help them work towards greater well-being. And so I thought to myself, this sounds like it's for me. And so I went to UNO and two and a half years later, I went out into the field as a provisionally licensed counselor, and as of January of this year, I finished that licensure, and I'm now a licensed professional counselor in the state of Louisiana. Uh, by this time, I have done probably close to around four to 5,000 hours of counseling. I've done groups, I've done individual therapy, I've worked with diagnoses ranging from borderline personality disorder to suicidal attempt intervention to depression to anxiety to impulse control disorder to bipolar disorder to schizophrenia and antisocial personality disorder as well. So I've gotten to see a large run of different expressions of emotion, uh, genetic expressions of disease of the brain, as well as you know, maybe some things that were lifestyle issues that could have been resolved with some behavioral intervention um, if the person had more access and more support than was currently available to them. So here I am, a counselor and fitness trainer and combat veteran and former fighter, and I'm going to do my best to guide us through this journey to learn about our evolved human needs learn why we should even care, and learn what to do to meet them, even though we have to live in a modern environment. So thanks for sticking with it so far. The first thing I want to cover about this idea of evolution is the consequence of not caring. Why do we need to know why we evolved to have four fingers and a thumb or... Um, death perception, or a certain type of ability to sense color in our vision field, or why we walk upright, or why we eat a combination of meat and vegetables and starches and insects and all sorts of other things. You know? Why is this important? 
So, to put it briefly, um, if you don't follow an understanding of your evolved needs, you're not going to understand that many of those needs haven't changed even though the environment we're currently in as modern human beings in an industrial society is poorly designed to help us meet those needs. Okay? So what we're looking at is if we follow our impulsive or instinctive impulses, we're going to be looking at poor physical health, negative states of emotion, automatic responses to poor physical health, and negative emotional states. We're going to be looking at ineffective thought patterns, um, and we're going to be less effective in communicating with people. And the lack of our awareness of the origin of these problems is only going to compound all these other things I've just mentioned. Okay. So what I'm going to get into next is sort of a, a little bit about the origins of the body and brain that you as a homo sapien sapien are walking around in and dealing with today. So anthropologists suggest, um, to the degree that modern radiocarbon data methods can be trusted, um, that the makeup of your brain and body has become relatively close to the same as it is today, in the neighborhood of about 150 to 100,000 years ago. Um, most evolutionary psychologists still go with the out-of-Africa origin for human ancestors, um, Australopithecus, Homo erectus, and on, down on to, um, you know, Neanderthal, which was not a direct line of us, but kind of a neighbor, up to Homo sapiens sapien that we are today. And back in 150,000 years ago, um, what you're looking at is a hunter-gatherer lifestyle. Okay? And what that means is that the important tasks of the day were the acquisition of food, water, um, safe housing, although it was likely to be mobile, um, and the avoidance of threats and dangers. And that could be extreme climate, it could be predators or rivals in the animal kingdom for your food sources, and it could even be other tribes of humans. Okay. So the things that a Homo sapiens sapien was designed to be good at, the things that were, were tasks that made you better at hunting, better at avoiding danger, better at fight, uh, finding food and shelter and clean water, and uh, better at spotting threats from a long distance away, and better at um, evading or defeating threats to your survival. Okay, And we are the product of about, a, from that point, about 150,000 years of people choosing mates that best help them survive. And what that means is, today, we are extremely adapted as a species to deal with the problems of a hunter-gatherer world. Okay. Unfortunately, today, or fortunately, if, depending on how you look at technological comfort, today is nothing like that 
for most of us. Uh, most of us don't hunt for our food or strike flint and rock together to make fires. We don't engage in persistence hunting where we'll have to chase down an antelope for the better part of 20 miles to throw a sharpened wooden spear into it and hope that does the job or go hungry. Um, most of us don't have to deal with um, the threat of death through violence on a daily basis. We don't usually have to deal with malnutrition and starvation. Um, generally, drinkable water is available to us. And failure to obtain respect within your small group of people generally doesn't result in exile and death. So in many ways, we've got it a lot easier and a lot nicer than our ancestor of 150,000 years ago. Really, except for one little problem. And we have this sort of dissonance of our design. Okay? And don't take the word design and think I'm coming at it with a religious standpoint. I'm just talking about human beings as a carbon-based machine of flesh, bone, blood, skin, muscle, so on and so forth, that is built to do a certain thing a certain way. Okay? And the thing about it is, all these things I've mentioned that a hunter-gatherer had to do, a great number of them are pretty hard. Um, I had the pleasure of briefly living with the Shuar tribe in southeast Ecuador, and... I got to somewhat get a feel for the tasks of checking snares and hunting and learning what some of all the plants mean and um, any other number of these tasks, and I can see it really can wear you out. So having to do this for your entire lifespan was pretty stressful in the human body in ways I'm sure most of us could only barely imagine. And as a survival mechanism, perhaps the action of doing some of those difficult things and the brief time that I did them felt extremely good. Um, if I made a snare trap, that felt awesome. If I struck a piranha in, the, in a shallow creek, it was great. Um, once I ate that piranha, it was even better. Um, learning how to set up a camp in the trees so that, and then learning how to defend those trees against encroachment by bullet ants that was very rewarding. It was a very worthwhile sleep. And so every... To take that idea even further, every time a primitive human underwent something that was difficult, you get rewarded, or that human being would get rewarded with a cascade of chemicals that say, good job, um, you did a great job hunting, and I know that was dangerous, and I know that was hard, but you've just helped your own and your tribe survival. So have some dopamine. Make that pleasurable so that I can count on you to get up despite the pain and aches and groans and difficulty and fear and go hunt that mammoth next time. You know? And so if you fast forward to today, a lot of our challenges aren't recognized as such by the body and brain structure that we have. And as a result, you can feel exhausted and beat down and stressed out, but you're not triggering the reward systems 
that your body and brain are still designed to crave. So that's kind of the consequence of not knowing your evolved needs in a nutshell. You can go around through life and not even know that everything you're doing is not giving you the rewards of chemicals for which you were designed. And when you don't get those rewards, the consequences are obvious. Um, But leave it to me to expand upon the obvious even further. So, when you're not getting these rewards, you just don't feel good. Um, The pleasurable things are less pleasurable, and we can go into the neurochemistry of that a little bit later. The pattern of getting up and doing the same according to your body and brain's evolved needs, mediocre things will lead to you feeling unsatisfied, uh, depleted, and chronically stressed. Okay, And when you're chronically stressed, you're going to run into an issue where your body and brain doesn't invest itself in growth or future health. And the most you can hope for in that state it's just sort of lagging by in bare minimal survival. And it's hard to reduce the human condition and emotional states down to simple factors, but a good amount of modern psychological illness probably has a great deal to do with people not knowing and meeting these needs for which their bodies are all designed but the modern behaviors with which they engage don't provide. Okay? So, I feel like I've set the stage, maybe to the point of overkill, and what I'd like to do is kind of give you just an overview of some behaviors that, when manipulated and changed in certain ways, can help you get some of these evolved needs met and start to feel some of the benefits chemically in your brain and body. All right? So we're going to cover just a few things, just um, five sorts of things that if you do them, you start to trigger these evolved needs, okay? And we're going to cover exercise. Rest, we're also going to cover. We're going to cover nutrition. We're going to cover meditation. And we're going to cover acute stress interventions, okay, which, as we go into each of these five things, understand that each of these will probably be their own episodes in the future. Many of these are extremely controversial, not in the fact that they're good for you, but as in the fact that (coughs) many people have very different and very extreme opinions on the subjects, okay? So what I'm going to do with this is we're going to take each of these from the perspective of evolutionary psychology and mental health, okay? So when I talk about exercise, we're going to discuss exercise from the perspective of mimicking the evolved needs of a primitive human and of optimizing your mental health through your body activity, okay? When we talk about Rest, same thing. Um, What style of resting optimizes your evolved needs and has the best chance of 
um, maximizing your mental health gains from that. Same with nutrition, same with meditation, and same with acute stress interventions. So don't take these topics to say that I am disagreeing with or contradicting any other number of people who have different views on the subject. Just look at it as tailoring these activities for the tasks of optimizing mental health. Okay. So that being said, let's talk about exercise first. So when you're looking at exercise, understand that a primitive human had to do a lot of exercise to get by. Um, and what that looked like was not just one type of designer body exercise. They had to do any number of activities, depending on the environment they lived in, to get by. That could be running, that could be long hikes, that could be uh, chopping, that could be swimming, that could be climbing, that could be uh, pulling, pushing, digging, scraping. Every... Every muscle in the human body was built with a particular purpose. And if these muscles did not somehow get use in the primitive world, over time, they would have been selected out, and you would not have them today as a modern human. Okay? So, I'm going to break up exercise into six different things. Okay? And we're not going to go into a great deal about any one of them, in this episode. This is just sort of an introduction to the overview and concepts. All right? So exercise, we have cardiovascular exercise. And what you're talking about there is the act of increasing your heart rate and testing your aerobic capacity and limits. Okay? And this could be done in a number of ways. This could be done through swimming, through climbing, through uh, wind sprints, through sprinting, through running, um, it, could, it can be done to a lesser extent through jogging. Anything that taxes your heart rate, any, anything that puts you on that little formula um, where you get your heart rate up to the maximum safe number that it should be, okay, through sustained intense activity, that's going to improve vascularity, that is your circulation, that's going to improve the strength of your heart muscle. That can, over time, lower your um, beats per minute on your pulse. And that's going to make you produce positive neurochemicals in greater amounts, um, hormones as well. And the acute stress of that is going to help you with genetic expression. So cardiovascular exercise is very, very important. Um, next up, we have interval training. Okay, And what... Some simple examples of that might be something to the effect of CrossFit, P90X, military-style calisthenics, um, hitting you know circuit sets on, on weights, these sorts of things. And the purpose of interval training is sort of a bridge between strength endurance and cardiovascular exercise. Generally, when you're doing these types of things where you might um, do... 20 burpees, and then um, skip rope for a few minutes, and then, you know, do so many lifts of dumbbells or something to that effect. When you do this, you're not aiming to hit your uh, maximum strength. You're aiming to test the relationship between several groups of muscles, and you're looking to test your cardiovascular endurance and sort of merge it all together, okay? 
Uh, interval training is exceptionally good for weight loss, for um, emotional health, feeling really good, bliss emotions, you know, these sorts of things. And it will have incredible physical shaping results. However, and this is deceptive because if you look at studies, they show interval training for a period of like six to eight weeks and everything looks amazing. The downside of interval training is if you do it for too long um, as your only or main type of training, you're going to drastically increase your chances of injury, right? Every time a CrossFit center opens up, a uh, physical therapist office is not far behind, right? And so with interval training, I encourage it, but I also encourage it to be moderate and balanced. One thing I don't like about group interval training exercises such as CrossFit are that if you go at the pace of a group at high intensity for um, a long period of time and you do so over and over and over, that plan is not tailored for your maximum, nor is it tailored for your needs of rest and recovery, um, nor is it matched to the diet that you have. Um, and no consideration to your genetic structure, your medical limits, things like that are really uh, put to play in the degree that I would consider anywhere near adequate. So if you do engage in group interval training for the motivation benefits and the camaraderie, I would highly encourage you to check your ego and make really certain that you don't push yourself beyond what you need to just to impress your friends. If you're going to do something um, like CrossFit and you feel like you're at your limit, um, you need to gauge that and don't have any shame in backing off to prevent injury. So moving on, we have agility training. Um, so agility, I use the word generally because there's stretching and there are also warm-ups, all right? Stretching is when you apply pressure to a muscle's limit on its range of motion with the goal to increase that range of motion. I have an issue with that because oftentimes stretching is applied unsafely. Um, you're, you might be using gravity, you might be um, pushing the muscle beyond what it safely needs to do, or that tendon or joint or you know, uh, ligament. And so with stretching, you can actually make yourself more susceptible to injury rather than less if you're not careful. And that's a problem. So what I would encourage instead, or at least in addition to, or first is warm-ups, okay? And when, when I say warm-up, I'm talking about gradually building light testing of your range of motion um, of an exercise. So you might slowly start to move your arms around or twist your trunk or roll your neck or um, sort of uh, bring your knees up to your chest one at a time, these sorts of things. It's not forced, it's not harsh, it's not sudden, it's slow, the circulation increases as the muscles warm up, and what happens is you can more safely increase your range of motion and micronutrients to those muscles before you start to use them in earnest, okay? So when you're doing agility, try not to mash the extended limits of your ligaments, tendons, muscles. Instead, gradually build them up. Let the circulation get in there. Let the fibers relax. And 
gently test yourself by contrast. Okay. So the next form of exercise is strength endurance. Okay. And what you're dealing with here is your ability to conduct the actions of lifting, pulling, pushing, things of this nature, in a sustained way. So let's say you can lift 200 pounds over your head, but you can maybe take five steps and then you have to drop those 200 pounds. That would be more hypertrophy, which we'll get to next. Strength endurance, for example, you might see this in like military boot camps or fireman training where they might sling their buddy over their shoulder and carry them for 50 meters. Or you might uh, pick up a set of dumbbells and do 15 to 20 repetitions, you know, at less than you could lift one time, but doing the activity enough times to exhaust yourself through the endurance factor. And this is a good balance because most functional fitness doesn't really require a massive amount of strength one time. It tends to require sustained effort of moderate difficulty. And this very much mimics things like bringing back a deer home to camp um, after you've shot it with a bow, or um, carrying firewood to the camp, or bringing back the fishnet, or carrying water from the creek to the camp, you know, um, or dragging back your friend who's injured. So strength endurance is very important from a functional fitness perspective, and it also helps you um, just have more energy throughout the day, okay? Um, if you are... At a, even an office job, but you have to lift paper and move chairs around and um, things of this nature, you won't find yourself as taxed if you have a good strength endurance um, upon which to rely. Okay, So then we move on down to hypertrophy. And in ancient times, as hunter-gatherers, there were very few moments in a day that might require... Um, the full explosive strength of action. And that might be lifting something extremely heavy that might have fallen on your friend, or it might be slamming that um, club into the lion's face as hard as you can when it goes to attack you, or it might be jumping as hard as you can to get over that cliff uh, to get to where the food is, or whatever the case may be. But Hypertrophy is not, was not the primary um, muscular development concern of a primitive human. Uh, as humans got to be more specialized in their roles, hypertrophy became a little bit more popular. And the thing, when I say hypertrophy, which means development of extremely large muscles or uh, high strength, that's very expensive for the human body to maintain with caloric intake and um, thermal you know, homeostasis needs and the like. Okay? That being said, it's, it's useful to have the ability to output explosive short-term strength, but it's problematic if that is the extent of your exercise. If you are somebody who goes to the gym and does just like a, a bro lift. A, uh, today is chest, bro. Tomorrow's back, bro. Um, you know, Wednesday is uh, shoulders, bro. And Thursday is legs, bro. And you only do maybe like three sets of six on whatever it is you can do. 
you're going to be really out of balance, and the more relevant forms of fitness as related to mental health are not going to be quite satisfied. And that means you're going to have a consequence as far as um, regular levels of neurochemicals that help you feel good. And, you know, before any of any bro listeners get offended, I'm, I'm a huge fan of hypertrophy in my own personal practice. I, I love the squats, deadlifts, heavy bench, um, clean presses, chin-ups, all these things. Um, you know, especially if you have a specialized sport like, say, fighting, kickboxing, that requires these things, then by all means go for it. There's nothing wrong with hypertrophy, but don't engage in that to the neglect of cardiovascular, interval training, agility training, warm-up, strength endurance, okay? Um, and then the sixth section I have is sort of bringing this all together, okay? And they're, they're calling it like functional performance, functional fitness, um, you know, anytime a new concept comes out or gets rediscovered by a magazine, someone's going to try and make money by uh, giving it a new name and workbook, right? So we'll just call it functional performance. And functional performance, by my understanding and definition, is the combined sum of all physical fitness tasks that you can engage in, which will improve your function as a human being. Okay, and what you're probably looking at, if you want the optimal state of physical movement in your routine, that's going to help you feel better uh, than any other type of method, you're probably looking at a healthy, balanced combination of cardiovascular exercise, interval training, agility warm-up, strength endurance, and hypertrophy. So, I would discourage you from over-specialization, and this is where it gets to be quite doctrinal with people people that love one thing over another, right? So please don't take offense. The objective here, again, is for optimal human emotional performance. That's not to say that if you're a cardio guy and you do ultra marathons, but, you know, you can't lift two pairs of tennis shoes, that I'm wrong and I don't know what I'm talking, so let's not get doctrinal. Or if um, you can squat 600 pounds, but you can't jog a half mile without an asthma inhaler, you know, Let's not look at it from a perspective of, I like this, so this is more important. This is from the perspective of what human beings are designed to do. Uh, And again, you can be out of balance and still get benefits. It's just not the optimal, efficient method with which to do so. Okay? So have a good balance of cardio, interval training, agility, strength endurance, and hypertrophy. To have functional performance that meets your evolved needs as a human. Okay, so moving on to the idea of rest. You can't really talk about exercise without talking about the idea of rest. Okay, so as human beings, we've evolved a few mechanisms that make us uniquely awesome at operating when the sun is out. Okay, and we call this the circadian rhythm. When people think of circadian rhythm, they generally only think of, you know, your sleeping clock, as in when you're naturally set to wake up, when you're naturally set to go to bed, so on and so forth. Um, Circadian rhythm is that and so much more. Um, A circadian rhythm is the sort of programming that your brain and body follows to tell you, or to tell your body, 
when um, certain organs perform better, when you get so much circulation, when your brain recovers, your body recovers, um, when the toxins are flushed out, right? When you um, get to kind of slow down certain organ systems so that they can rest and recover and when certain other organ systems are firing on all cylinders, okay? So circadian rhythm is extremely important. It's like um, default computing for your operating system of your brain and body. Now, what this means is that your human body and brain was designed to wake up with the sun and become inactive when the sun went down. And everything from when you eat to how much you eat, at what times you eat, eat it, what kind of light you're exposed to, at what time you're exposed to it, um, when you take in certain supplements like caffeine or uh, sleep aids or things like that, what your environment does to either facilitate or hinder the natural circadian rhythm feedback loop from the sun um, and the temperature of the air, okay? The circadian rhythm is very, very, very important. Okay, and the, to simplify this, the closer you can get to a natural circadian rhythm of being active during the day and relaxed and then asleep at night, the easier it's going to be and the more efficient your body and brain are going to put together the chemicals and electrical states that you need to perform optimally. And again, this isn't to say that you cannot be a happy, healthy, functional human being if you work the night shift or if you're nocturnal. It just means that you're kind of going a little bit um, against the current to do so. And that goes for exercise, too. If you um, don't exercise, it's not impossible to be happy. with. Um, and if you don't exercise, it's just really going against the current. You're making things a lot more difficult. And so what I'm hoping going through all these is that you'll be able to go with the current and really make the act of being a healthy, happy, optimal human, much easier um, than it would otherwise be. Okay, so back to the idea of rest. So to understand rest, you have to understand brain states. Okay, and you've got a brain wave state. And a brain wave state is just sort of a measured output within a certain parameter um, for a certain period of time. Okay, and so... Most of the time, you're in a certain brain state. In brief moments, you're in a more intensive brain state, such as um, fight-or-flight responses or overcoming challenges or reacting to extreme acute stress. Okay? When you're in light sleep, you're in another brain state, and when you're in deep sleep, you're in another one. Okay? So understanding circadian rhythm and understanding how sleep works in a simple form will really help you kind of get a picture uh, of how to optimize these brain states. So from the period of beginning a sleep cycle to ending it, um, in about a three-hour block, you run into that point where you leave the relaxed and light sleep brain state. You go into the deep sleep and body recovery brain state. You go back to the light sleep uh, brain state and then back to your normal operating brain state by the end of it. So that's about a three hour block for most people. 
Um, if you've ever sort of taken a nap or overslept, but you woke up feeling groggy and worse than when you started, there's a good chance that you, for some reason, interrupted that um, three-hour cycle. And so you probably felt worse than if you wouldn't have taken a nap at all. Okay. So one way to optimize the state is to try and create routines where you end up getting sleep in three-hour blocks. Uh, in the Army, it was very common for us on operations to not get more than three hours of sleep. Sometimes we'd get none, but usually we would try to at least fit in about three hours of uh, good sleep or rest before going to our next task whenever possible. And I don't know that our sergeants immediately knew this from a neuro standpoint, but they've had enough practical experience on operations to just know the intuitive role of human functioning. And three hours is enough to think clearly enough to do most tasks reasonably well. Um, and of course, the longer you push that, the, um, that becomes less and less true day by day. Now, the other three-hour blocks of sleep are more used for physical recovery. Um, the body tends to prioritize brain function and then move on down to other things. So once the brain's taken care of, from there, the next three hours starts to work on the body, and the next three hours starts to work on the body. And, y'all, this isn't entirely segregated. Everything's integrated, but we're speaking in sort of general terms here. Uh, that's not to say that by hour four there's no work happening on your brain. Don't take it that literally. It's just sort of generally the first three hours deals with this, the next three hours deals with that, the next three hours deals with that. So it's recommended about that the younger you are, the more sleep you get. So in your younger years, childhood, adolescence, 20s, it's stated that you should probably be getting around the nine-hour sleep mark. Um, but as you get older, six tends to become more than acceptable for most people most of the time, 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, and then as you become very old, what happens is you might find yourself needing more and more naps throughout the day with uh, added uh, cell senescence and things like that. So one thing, too, is if you find yourself lacking energy throughout the day and you find a nap to be tempting, I would highly encourage you to go to a 30-minute maximum on your nap. And that should allow you to get a little bit of a benefit without dipping into that deep rest brain state and messing yourself up when you come out of it halfway through. Okay. So another, um, another thing to keep in mind when you're trying to get good rest are the chemical stressors you put in your body. Okay, um, Caffeine, alcohol, drugs, even over-the-counter ones, sleep aids, things like that, they tax your body and cause you to redirect resources and processing them out. And some of them are direct, uh, like caffeine or uh, central nervous system stimulants. Alcohol is a central nervous system depressant. And these things mess either with your sleep itself or with the repair quality of the sleep um, in trying to process them out. So generally, try to minimize your use of caffeine, alcohol, drugs, sleep aids, and if you must use them, going back to circadian rhythm, your ability to process them out is greater earlier in the day. 
So if you can avoid things like caffeine um, uh, before, like, sorry, at any point after noon, you're probably going to have a much better time processing that stuff out by the time bedtime rolls around. Okay. And even, again, I want to stress, even things that seem to put you to sleep, like alcohol, sleep aids, NyQuil, things like that, they can knock you out, but the quality of sleep from a body repair perspective is nowhere near as good. So just be mindful of that. No one's expecting perfection, but if you can move towards growth there, you'll probably really reap the benefits quickly. Um, Another thing about rest is that in our modern world, We've got a lot of control over what our environment looks like. We can really, really shape that to a great degree. Um, You know, keeping the light on all night and having bright colors in the room and having the radio or the TV on or, um, you know, having the noise of a heater or air conditioner, these sorts of things. What I would encourage is try to minimize environmental disruptions when it's time to go to bed, um, and several hours before. So let's say you, um, you have your computer, you have your radio, you have your TV. I would say at least a few hours before bed, try to cut out those stimulating influences. So that might mean turning the computer off a couple hours before bed. That might mean, you know, shutting down the TV. Uh, It might mean turning off the radio a couple hours before bed. And again, you don't have to do all of this all the time. It's just that every movement you make adds up to kind of make it easier to go with the flow, to have an improved rest, okay? Um, Another thing, proper eating patterns. Human beings were not designed to stuff their face before bed. Okay, you are, from a circadian rhythm perspective, an organ function perspective, horrible at metabolizing and processing out these things that you put in right before bed. So you're going to end up harming your gut microbiome, which we'll get into another day. You're going to end up um, having a hard time relaxing to even sleep because you've just shoved energy into your body when you're trying to get your body to not use energy, and relax. So it really makes life pretty difficult for a number of reasons. The recommendation is if you can have a 13-hour window between the last bite of food at night and the beginning of food the next day. So if you go to bed for... um, If you have your last meal at 7 o'clock, that means your breakfast should be no earlier than 8 o'clock. So that 13-hour window is really important. There's all kinds of implications from reduction in catching cancer to greater energy levels to better metabolic efficiency to immune system response, gut microbiome, anxiety, depression, all sorts of wonderful stuff improve with a 13-hour fast between your last meal, finishing your last meal, and beginning your first the next day. I want to also talk to you about the role of electronic artificial light when it's coming to your rest. Blue-based lights, the kind found in most um, electronics, are the most disruptive to your sleep patterns. Okay? So what that means is, if, you have, if you're checking your phone at night, checking text messages, Facebook, whatever, 
if you've got your TV on, if you've got your laptop on, um, you are tricking your brain states uh, through your visual cortex, and you are kind of messing up your circadian rhythm just a little bit, okay? Um, so keep in mind to minimize your electronic light the closer you get to bed, okay? Another point I want to make to you is that the more physically active you are earlier in the day, and the more mentally active you are earlier in the day, um, and the more relaxed you generally are later in the day, that's going to set up a routine where sleep comes more easily for you. So what you want to do is you want to do the bulk of your tasks as early as possible and have a large, if possible, I know it's difficult in our modern industrial world, but a large block of downtime preceding your sleep cycle. And that's going to help make it very easy for you to have a predictable rest pattern. Okay, So we've covered... Uh, exercise, we've covered rest. Now we're going to move on to nutrition. And this one's a bit of a monster, but we'll try and tackle it. So, <laughs> of all the things that cause allegiance warfares and um, doctrine conflicts, nutrition is certainly, certainly, certainly one of them. And there is no single perspective on nutrition that is correct versus incorrect. Think of it more like designing your input in a certain way to get a specific output. Um, if you are looking for to become an extreme endurance athlete, your diet is going to look a lot different than somebody who's looking to become a um, hypertrophic powerlifter. Okay, so just keep in mind this is not a one-size-fits-all human solution, but we're going to get to sort of a this is how your primitive needs were evolved, and we're going to focus on that. And the goal of this nutrition philosophy is going to be for meeting evolved needs for the ease of emotional health. Okay? So, I want to start off by saying nutrition is extremely complicated, but it doesn't have to be. Okay? Keep it Keep it as simple as possible. I'm not really, as a fitness trainer and a nutrition coach, I'm not really big on people counting calories and having you know calculators and uh, complicated sheets and rhythm and rhythms and just sort of um, reward point systems and this sort of stuff. It just, from what I know about impulse control, those behaviors exhaust the glucose reserves in your prefrontal cortex, which is your impulse control center, more than they help you um, in most cases. So I would say follow a few simple rules as best as you can and don't obsess over your inability to meet some perfect regimen, okay? Because the perfect regimen doesn't exist. And even if it did, if you followed it to, uh, to the perfect degree, you would probably suffer in terms of willpower and glucose access in your PFA. So, that being said, keep it really simple. And one simple thing you can do is to avoid something that is not an intact food. Um, they use the word whole foods, also uh, natural foods. I don't like organic as a term personally because organic just means it's made of carbon. 
Um, technically, you could, you know, you could eat charcoal, <laughs> and that would be an organic meal, right? Another thing is GMOs and pesticides and things like that don't necessarily make the food that you eat incapable of being nutritious. Um, so I'm not really a big fan of the organic movement. Um, there's other reasons for it, like biodiversity and preventing species extinction. From some, uh, so from a social consciousness perspective, yes, there's merit to that, but from a raw individual nutrition perspective, it really doesn't provide, in my opinion, the result to be worth the complication and stress of adhering to those things. And the expense, because healthy food is more expensive, unfortunately. Uh, so keep it simple. And what I mean by that is, if it exists in the form that you see it in the grocery store, in nature, it's probably not that bad. Again, these are general rules. Um, this is not meant to be taken as 100% um, without exception. Okay, There are things that are perfectly fine in nature that if you eat them, you'll die. Um, you pick the wrong mushroom, you dig up the wrong root, you eat the wrong leaf, and that's the end of you. So don't think that natural is necessarily healthy. But generally, if you're talking about things that make it to a grocery store, if it is in, in a form that exists in nature, uh, a fruit, a vegetable, a meat, a, um, a, you know, a raw grain, things like this, although grain has its own issues, um, it's going to likely be better for you than something you find in a box or a bag or a jar. Okay, So just very simple, um, intact foods are better generally than processed foods. And by process, just did they do something to it in a factory to stick it into a bag, a jar, or a box? Right. So don't overcomplicate it. Something that is raw is prob uh, or fresh is probably better for you than something that is frozen. Uh, something that is that you bake is probably better for you than something that is fried. These are just general simple things and ideas you could take with you. And without obsessing over so many details and crazy amounts of information, you can benefit from knowing that and making little decisions slightly differently than maybe you were before. Okay. Um, the next thing I want to do is I want to import. I want to stress the importance of hydration. Okay, you need a certain amount of water in your body to function. Okay, and many of us walk around in a chronically mildly dehydrated state. So, a couple ways you can tell whether or not you have enough water if you have enough if you're hydrated is when you go to the bathroom. Look for color in your urine. The darker the color, the more dehydrated you are. Now, there are exceptions to this, of course. Uh, you can be on a certain type of medication that changes your color, or you can consume a certain type of artificial dye from food that can change the color of it. But generally, if, um, if it's clear, you're in better shape most of the time as far as your hydration. Okay? Another thing that you can try is a skin pinch test. If you pinch your skin between your thumb and your forefinger, it should um, go back down to the shape it was. But if it's sort of slow to, to do that, if it kind of like hangs in, in its spot for a second before going back, that's another sign that your cells don't have enough moisture in there. Okay. Um, one thing about hydration, it is possible to overdo it. 
It's called hyponatria when you drink so much water you wash out minerals and salts from your, uh, from your body. So I've, we've all heard the 8 eight ounce glasses a day of water. That is not actually backed by any legitimate science. It's just something somebody said and it crossed through the history of our narrative and it's still around. That's not a solid rule. Um, drink until you meet one of these two or hopefully both of these two conditions. And if you feel your stomach kind of hurting a bit, you probably had too much. Um, also, with hydration, it's usually better to do so consistently than to try and, you know, chug everything you can at the beginning of the day and then do nothing after. It's better to sort of do so throughout the day. Another thing about hydration is when you wake up, if you we use blankets and such nowadays, and we have controlled environments, so there's a high chance that you might have sweat during your sleep more than you would have in the natural world. So you may find yourself dehydrated. I highly recommend you keep water next to your bedside table that you can just access the moment you wake up. Definitely get water before you go to any other sort of drinks like coffee, which most of us are prone to do in the morning. Once you have that water, you're sort of benefiting yourself and you're catching up to what you might have lost that night throughout your sleep, okay? So, but also don't gorge yourself on it. Do it slow and steady, consistently. It's going to give you much better results than if you try and sort of cram for the hydration test, so to speak. All right, so I think I've harped on water enough. <laughs> so now I'm going to kind of go into... A little bit about the simple do's and don'ts that most of us can agree on for, for nutrition. Okay, um, Without getting into particular doctrines, I don't have a problem with anybody being vegan or veg vegetarian or paleo diet preferent or uh, primal diet preferent or Atkins diet or South Beach diet and the list goes on, right? Um, we keep to these, we have these doctrines that really limit our thinking, and I'm not here to attack anybody's doctrine. I just want to sort of talk to you about what we are biologically built to do with what we put in our body, okay? So human beings are, by evolutionary definition, omnivorous, and that means we eat a range of foods from plants to insects to animals to fungi, okay? And... We have mechanisms that use vitamins, minerals, proteins, lipids, simple and complex carbohydrates, fibers, um, from all sorts of original sources, okay? And if you have too specialized of a diet, you're probably going to have a deficit in some area. Um, a large number of people in the modern world are highly deficit in certain vitamins they need, minerals they need. Magnesium comes to mind. Uh, vitamin K comes to mind. Um, so keep in mind that if you are going to have a narrow diet, that maybe you might want to consider supplementation with a multivitamin or to um, talk to a dietitian and see what you might be missing. Okay. Um, another thing about our omnivorous origins of nutrition is that we were not designed to eat anywhere near the amount that most modern uh, industrial country 
residing people eat. We eat way too much food, way too often, without nearly enough of a break of intermittent fasting. Okay, so another thing that's completely um, not scientific at all, but just sort of entered our narrative culturally and is stuck there, is this idea of three square meals a day. There is no scientific evidence, no evolutionary evidence that hints that three meals a day is actually good for you. Um, what is optimal is to take in the right amounts of food, the right types of those amounts, and to do so at the right point in your circadian rhythm, and to react to specific needs of your immune system, and maybe your climate, and perhaps your particular situation. Okay, So diet can be very complicated, but it can also be very simple. In general, um, processed stuff, preserved stuff, salts, refined sugars, high fructose corn syrup, um, especially artificial sweeteners such as sucralose, aspartame, uh, that you find in Splenda, Sweet and Low, um, not good for you. Okay, These are definitely on the list of you can just cut those out and you'll have no problems. Um, another thing is alcohol. We are not... Actually, there is no need for alcohol in the human diet. So the less of that you have, the better. Um, another thing is grain or bread products. Okay, not uh, I'm not going to get too deeply into the gluten-free uh, fad that's going around. The gluten thing itself is a matter for celiac disease, although most human beings have mild intolerances that just don't reach a clinically significant level. Um, the issue with bread and grain and pasta and things and flour-based products at all is not necessarily the gluten so much as it is the fact that it's all made of simple carbohydrates, okay? And carbohydrates trap ATP in your body's organs, liver and kidneys and things of the nature, and that means you have less currency with which to have energy throughout your day. So you may find if you go a while without processed grains or simple carbohydrates such as starches, you may find that you have more energy because your ATP isn't as trapped in your liver. Okay. Um, processed sugar is so detrimental to your body. Uh, and by the way, simple carbohydrates turn into effectively refined sugar when you process that to its stages. Okay, And sugars are so detrimental to your body, not, not necessarily uh, glycogen or, um, or glucose from fruit or vegetables or, you know, matter of that, but sucrose, um, fructose, this stuff is so bad for you that it, in my estimation, it shouldn't even qualify as a food. It should actually qualify instead as a mild drug. It has addictive properties. It has little to no uh, nutritional value. Um... And it is far more detrimental to human health and survival than it is in any way beneficial. Um, and from an ethical standpoint, many of our manufacturers of food put sugars into things that have no business having them, knowing fully well that refined sugars have an addictive response. So if you can cut that addiction to sugar, you're doing a lot better than most of us in the modern world. 
as for what you should have, um, again, intact foods. You should probably have um, those raw vegetables which are edible without cooking. You should probably have them without cooking. Dark leafy greens, you should definitely be having those. Protein, you should be having, but it is not nearly as easy as bodybuilding magazines and things like that would like you to believe to become protein deficit. Unless you are engaging in a lot of hypertrophic or strength endurance or interval training exercises, large amounts of protein really aren't that necessary, and most of what you take in through protein shakes and the like are going to just pass out uselessly through your digestive tract. It's not going to be absorbed. Um, so keep that in mind. That whole thing of one uh, gram of protein per pound of body weight per day when you're bodybuilding, that is almost never uh, necessary or sufficient. What's going to happen is you're going to digest most of that out uselessly, and you're going to make things more difficult for your liver and kidneys in the process. So don't go overboard with protein. Most of your uh, calories should probably come from vegetables, then fruits, then maybe meat, um, sugars, grains, starches, things like that should be very minimal. Um, and again, we're not asking for perfection. If you can just make a habit of less of this, more of that, you're going to be off on, our, on the right track. Um, but what I don't want you to do is you get all this information, I don't want you getting um, analysis by paralysis. Don't overthink this stuff. Just keep it really simple. Follow basic principles more often than not, and you will get results. Okay. I want to talk to you about something that's become more popular in recent years, but isn't very well known, okay? I want to talk to you about the importance of your gut microbiome, and what I mean is that in your gut microbiome, that is your stomach, your upper and lower intestines, your rectum, these areas, um, your urethra, all that stuff, are inhabited by bacteria and yeast, okay, and that they're there, okay? There is no one's uh, intestinal tract that is not inhabited by outside bacteria. The thing about it is, depending on what you put into your body, determines what kind of bacteria and or yeast gets catered to, and that determines what your body is going to crave next. So if you are just switching from Pop-Tarts and Hot Pockets and ramen noodles and frozen pizzas, and you're just starting out with uh, dark leafy greens and fruits and other vegetables and lean meat proteins and natural foods, that's not going to actually be anywhere near as appealing for you at first because you've probably been fueling candida yeast in your intestinal tract for a very long time, and as that stuff dies off, while it's in a dominant state, it's going to beg you to give it the stuff it needs to continue reproducing in there, okay? Um, but if you can sort of work through that, you will gradually create um, a more healthy gut microbiome filled with things like acidophilus and other probiotics, is the general term for them, which will improve your digestion, improve your physical functioning, improve your immune system, reduce your risk of cancer and negative gene expression, and improve the vagal nerve response to your brain, telling you how often to be anxious and or depressed. Um, so one way to do this is lots of fiber. Uh, raw vegetables are great for fiber. Uh, fiber supplements, great. It's, almost, it's very hard to get too much fiber, but again, all things in moderation. 
Another thing to keep in mind, fermented foods, um, blue cheese, Bulgarian cheese, feta cheese that isn't so industrial that it's all killed, <laughs> um, natto, uh, all sorts of other things, uh, kimchi, sauerkraut, these types of foods can really help your gut flora, okay, reduce your inflammation, reduce oxidative stress, all the other stuff we just I just mentioned. Another thing is very inexpensively, they have these acidophilus uh, supplements that you can pick up and you can take one a day, and that will do a, uh, a good job of helping you reverse your gut microbiome. Now, of course, you, the optimal way to do this is to sort of use multiple simple strategies and sort of overcome it from multiple angles. So if you can get a little uh, fermented food, you can take an acidophilus supplement, minimize your sugars, grains... Uh, simple carbohydrates, have fiber, dark leafy greens, this sort of stuff, it's all going to work to your benefit. Okay? And that ties in very naturally to the topic of inflammation. Most of what causes human disease, human aging, is inflammation. Inflammation can, uh, consists of cell damage that causes an exaggerated immune response. And that immune response does two things. First, it takes away resources that could be used towards your long-term repair and health because it's busy fighting off real or perceived threats. And second, sometimes inflammation is not perfectly uh, surgical. It will attack and damage things that you need, oftentimes as much as things that it wants to um, react to. So inflammation can be handled by staying hydrated, having a healthy gut microbiome, eating the right stuff, um, keeping your body regularly active, and getting a, which brings us to our, our next point, um, getting a right fatty acid profile. Okay, So moving on down to fats. We as a culture have become terrified of fats. The word fat is synonymous with bad don't do it, don't eat it, fat-free this, fat-free that. And it's, um, it's awfully heart-wrenching when you see people who drastically want to improve their health and they really invest themselves in making sure that they get fat-free uh, diet, right? And we now know that simple carbohydrates and sugars are the leading caloric cause of obesity, not fats, despite the term that when someone has obesity, they're called fat. And the adipose tissue, the lipids, are indeed fat tissues, but that fat probably didn't come from eating fat tissue. That fat tissue was built after simple carbohydrates and sugars in excessive movement got turned into fat tissue, okay? So it's not about fats are bad. It's about avoiding the wrong kinds of fats, Omega-3, um, omega-3 fats are good for you, okay? Uh, some cholesterol, even, is good for you. We used to think it was horrible, but it turns out cholesterol is needed to make so many of our hormones um, that we need to function. So, um, we might want to think twice about not eating the egg yolk, for example. Um, so, don't fear fat. Beef broth, um, you know, lean meat, fats, these sorts of things, they're okay. Fish, uh, eating uh, wild-caught fish, grass-fed beef, these sorts of things, these fats are okay. 
Um, another, also, just like with pro, um, probiotics, there is supplementation. You can get omega-3 uh, fatty acids very inexpensively. You can get these things at the dollar store. Okay? And again, if you attack it from multiple angles, if you eat things that are rich in good fats, like avocados, salmon, um, lean grass-fed beef, and you do supplementation, you're going to be a lot better off. Okay? The thing about fats as well, fats have an important role in stopping inflammation. They're anti-aging. They have collagen, which helps you keep yourself, uh, which helps with body recovery. Um, you need fats for endurance events. Um, the more fats, you, healthy fats you have, they can be burned when your body um, goes into intermittent fasting or cold exposure or other things that can help you improve your performance. Okay. All right, so I think we've talked to death about nutrition, and yet we've barely scratched the surface. And that's okay. Nutrition is going to be its own monster, and I'm probably going to cringe before attempting to tackle it um, in full detail. So if you're still with us so far, we're going to move on to meditation. All right? So meditation is a really broad definition, guys. Um, when someone says they meditate, that's as vague as someone saying they engage in some kind of exercise movement. Um, with meditation, you are usually doing a particular type of thinking or a particular type of abstinence from active thinking, okay? So meditation is known to increase five major brain regions. And I'm going to see if I can get them right. You've got the prefrontal cortex because meditation can help you with impulse control. You've got the um, hypothalamus uh, and other parts of the limbic system, emotional reaction, um, because meditation improves your emotional state. You've got the parietal node, which helps you develop altruism and empathy, which is good not only for being a decent person, but for also seeing other people's needs, which can help you be more successful. Um, you've got the amygdala, which is your pain, stress, and fear response, which is actually generally reduced when you meditate, because one of the major problems with humans is we have this big brain that's always thinking and activating an amygdala response when the vast majority of the time it's uncalled for. So meditation is awesome for making your amygdala chill out. And another thing that gets uh, improved when you meditate is the pons, which is a major factory of all these wonderful neurochemicals you need to function better as a human being. Okay, So I think I said five. I can't remember, but... Major brain regions are enhanced through regular practice of different types of meditation. And just like every other topic, meditation is going to be its own monster, and I hope to make a whole episode out of it. So another effect of meditation is that meditation controls a couple hundred genes as far as how they express as related to making new cells. So that field, the field of how your DNA chooses to express or not express itself in cell um, division and you know, cell creation, that field is called epigenetics. And not all um, genes can be turned on and off, right? You can't um, meditate your way into having blue eyes or you know, being six foot six or you know, anything of the like. You can't do that. But there are some things where you can engage in active behaviors 
to control what epigenetic markers are turned on or turned off when that DNA gets tapped to make new cells. Think of DNA as the blueprints, and architects will say, look at those blueprints and make a new structure out of it, in this case, a cell. And if the architect, for example, says, let's not add this, this room in there, let's leave that room off of the blueprints for this project, then that building's not going to have that piece of the blueprint. So that's the simplest way I know how to explain epigenetics, but I'm probably grossly oversimplifying and butchering it. Let's just say that it's enough to get a basic idea. And meditation helps you as far as not expressing the type of epigenetic markers that lead to poor health, poor emotional state, poor cognitive patterns. Um, you know, you get the idea. So meditation is such a vague thing, but it's such a great thing, such a great set of things. And everybody loves to throw this term around, but so many people don't actually know what meditation or mindfulness actually means. So meditation, we've already said, is a leveraged way to think or not think in a particular fashion. Mindfulness is sort of this Western word that gets thrown out for particular forms of meditation or daily practice that are outside of meditation. To be mindful just means to pay specific attention to the here and now, or to the task at hand, okay? And the reason why this is so relevant is that as human beings, we become conditioned to these programs. Um, the brain is essentially the most remarkable computing machine in the known world, okay? So with com uh, computation, you have patterns. And if you have a mindless pattern, that means you've done something to the effect of it, um, creating a habit, a neural pathway, that you just do and you take for granted so that you spend the least amount of resources to do what you always do. And in some ways, hijacking that habit center is going to be critical to our success as human beings at becoming effortlessly good at what we want to get good at. But in some ways as well, the, this habit process we have as human beings can be really detrimental to our ability to do something different and better than what we're used to. So being mindful, that is to say, paying specific attention to what you're doing, in the moment you're doing it, in the way that you're doing it, and reflecting upon why you're doing it, is extremely valuable in helping you disrupt negative patterns and see a way to improve, or begin to improve, your next set of thought, emotion, or behavior to see a better pattern as a result in the future with your investment, okay? Um, another thing I want you to know about meditation, which we're not going to get into here because we're already running a little late on time here, uh, particular types of technique have different effects on different brain regions and on different epigenetic markers, okay? So when you say you meditate, it is very valuable to know what part of the brain, what type of meditation is affecting. Now, I don't know of any studies that have gone into this to great degree, but you can almost do a little inductive reasoning um, by saying that, okay, I know that, um, or sorry, deductive reasoning, where you say, I know that the parietal node 
is altruism and compassion. So if I'm doing a form of meditation that makes me feel more altruistic and compassionate um, and caring, I can be reasonably assured that this technique is working on my parietal node. And you can extrapolate that process to any particular meditation technique. Um, but again, I want you to be very aware that the techniques you use are not guaranteed to hit all five major brain regions. So make certain, as much as you can, that what you're doing is having those effects. Okay? And we're going to cover that in much greater detail on the meditation episode. All right. So let's go on down to the fifth general way that human beings can leverage knowledge of their evolutionary needs for self-improvement. I want to recap real quick, guys. We've covered exercise, we've covered rest, we've covered nutrition, we've covered meditation. Now we're moving on to acute stress interventions. And again, there's going to be a disclaimer at the end of every episode so you guys don't sue me, but I want to stress especially for this that these podcasts are not meant as clinical intervention in and of themselves. If you attempt these techniques in particular, it is highly encouraged for you to check with a relevant medical or mental health professional before you do so, especially because if you do this incorrectly and you don't have proper screening and you don't know yourself well enough, you can cause more detriment than good. Okay, So I want to throw that warning out there. Make sure you know your condition and make sure that you know how to operate optimally before you do any new techniques, okay, or make any changes. So, when I say acute stress intervention, in the modern world, we have very little acute stress and very, very, very high chronic stress. And chronic stress is going to cause not enough change to make us trigger self, you know, self-improvement chemical states, but it's going to cause enough damage to raise inflammation express negative epigenetic markers, um, and just generally age and slowly destroy us mentally and physically. So chronic stress is really bad for you. But acute stress, not only will acute stress in and of itself trigger helpful neurochemical responses in your body, um, acute stress actually inoculates the body to weaker forms of chronic stress. Okay? So... Chronic stress examples, um, just examine most people's lives, you'll probably see it. Work too much, eat bad food, um, too much exposure to negative news or um, low-density media with silly um, intellectual or lack of intellectual content, um, endless entertainment distractions, these sorts of things, financial problems, all this stuff excessive regulations in, in the legal system and society and things like this, um, proximity to crime, poverty, all this stuff are chronic stressors. And these chronic stressors, um, they will rip you apart if you don't know how to counteract them with all of the adaptive behaviors and changes that we've described above and are about to describe now. So acute stress, on the other hand, is a short-term, intense response that your body feels from the action you are doing 
and then it causes an equally intense, if not more, more intense, response to beat that stress. And part of that <clears throat> is to make you better at lowering inflammation, make you better at expressing those epigenetic markers which enhance your immune system with future cell reproduction. Okay, um, And if you do this over time, you will become much more resistant to chronic stressors. Uh, as a simple example, any of those guys that I was kickboxing with in Thailand, they were usually extremely relaxed outside of the ring because when you're not getting your head kicked in, what's a little bit of financial stress compared to the fear of a ring fight, right? Um, what's the inconvenience of being cut off in traffic when you've toughed out a broken leg, you know, for example? And this isn't universally true. You can be extremely good at some acute stressors and still be susceptible to chronic stress. And being exposed to acute stress is by no means licensed to drown yourself in chronic stress either. Again, when you think of this simply and from a common sense perspective, you want to sustainably, gradually initiate acute stressors while minimizing your chronic stressors. Okay? So now I want to go on to some acute stressors that are known to cause you extremely good benefits. All right? And again, acute stress is going to be its own podcast episode. Okay? So one example of acute stress is short-term high-intensity heat exposure, such as from a sauna. If you enter a sauna um, at its usual temperatures of somewhere around the neighborhood of like, you know... 100, 110, 120 degrees Fahrenheit, you're going to be looking at, if you can do this for 20 minutes, twice a day, for a week, you're going to be looking at a quadrupling of your insulin-like growth factor um, in your body, which means your muscle, lean muscle mass is going to increase, your um, adipose tissue is going to decrease, you are going to have brain-derived neurotropic factor, which increases your brain function, and you're going to fight inflammation. Um, an exception to this being, if you have a very recent injury, don't go immediately into intense heat. But that's kind of where we go into the, like, talk to your doctor, get yourself checked out before you make any of these changes, because there's always exceptions to the general rule, okay? By contrast, high-intensity, low-duration, cold exposure, um, and let me go back to heat for a second. In addition the sauna, for example, or intense heat exposure causes heat shock proteins which go in and repair a whole lot of damaged cells. And the same happens with extreme cold exposure. You have something called cold shock proteins that go in and do a similar job. So cold shock proteins, intense exposure to cold, that's going to, just like intense heat, increase your norepinephrine levels from acute stress. Okay? And you're going to trigger... <coughs> a possible endorphin response. You're going to improve your ability to deal with this cold. You're going to increase um, mitochondria functioning in your adipose tissue. And there are a million, uh, I say a million, don't quote me on that. There, there are plenty of other benefits that I can't remember off the top of my head right now uh, from a mechanical standpoint, and we can go into this in greater detail during the acute stress um, episode. But through exposing yourself to 
high-intensity, low-duration cold, you shock your body into enhancing not only its physical improvement, but also your mental health. Okay. Another thing is to improve the hyperoxygenation of your breathing. Okay. Most of us breathe in such a sad, shallow, unoptimal way that we don't really get what we need. Okay. And when you breathe deeply, that can actually be somewhat stressful. It's exhausting to your diaphragm. It, um, you might get dizzy. You might get airheaded, right? Uh, you know, lightheaded. I'm sorry, not airheaded. If you were airheaded before, you'll still be airheaded. I'm airheaded. <laughs> so, but if you breathe deeply, regularly, what's going to happen is you're going to sort of improve the cleansing function of your body. When I say cleansing, I mean your body's ability to operate metabolically and get rid of the trash in its cells, okay? So drawing in more oxygen through deeper rhythmic breathing is a stressful thing that has beneficial results, okay? Another um, type of acute stress are plant polyphenols. So many things that we think are filled with antioxidants and are so healthy, we don't really recognize until recently that the reason we measure them as healthy is because they actually stress the human digestive system to process them, but they do so in an acute way that makes you better at handling those stresses in the future. Okay? So a common example of a plant polyphenol that actually stresses your body, but in a way that makes it your body function better as a result of that stress, is green tea. Um, there are a bunch more examples, but we're already running in an hour and a half. So Let's go ahead and, uh, and let me just throw into this section too. Exercise is an acute stress that has similar heat shock protein effects and hyperoxygenation effects and things like that. Um, but we've already talked about exercise, so we'll leave that alone. So the last little, you know, not the last, the second to last section I want to talk to you about real quick is sort of how is this evolutionary psychology stuff any different than typical therapy? Um, and you might find, if you're a normal person who's not in a mental health or biological field or medical field, uh, you might find yourself shocked to hear that very few therapists out of the whole directly link their interventions to biology. Um, and what I mean by that... <clears throat> Typically, psychologists, social workers, counselors, I'm a counselor, um, we utilize a, a respected and established psychological theory of behavior from which we draw our techniques and engage with the client in the room. Um, now, many of these respectable psychological theories don't link the latest of biological literature into their actions. And that's not to say that you cannot be effective without doing this, but all the evidence is pointing to the benefit of having your process as a therapist, as a behavior interventionist of some kind, integrate the fulfillment of biological needs from an evolutionary perspective into what you're doing. Okay, And so... Part of my motivation for having this podcast is to get this information out to the general public, but also to my fellow therapists out there. Um, I had to dig 
into evolutionary psych literature, just general psych literature, general biology literature, medical literature, to get this information that wasn't provided to me in the program directly. Now, thankfully, I was at a program which gave me all the encouragement to fulfill that curiosity and to improve my process as a therapist, and I had great encouragement from professors and peers. Um, but not every program's like that. Not every, um, you know, not everywhere is going to trust their uh, budding students to go forth and integrate knowledge that's outside of their own personal wheelhouse. So I'm hoping that if you listen to this and you're a behavioral health professional of some kind, that you'll use some of this to integrate the fulfillment of instinctive, evolved biological needs through behavior into what you're doing. And I'm hoping that this offers some benefit to what is sure to be an already amazing practice that you are currently engaging in. Um, so how is this stuff different from typical therapy? When you think of typical therapy, um, not that therapy itself has a one-size-fits-all answer, but generally you're talking about some form of um, compassionate verbal interaction. You're talking about building rapport. You're talking about investigating the client issues. And you're talking about helping the client reflect upon these issues and the causes and conditions of them and figure out a plan to deal with them, and you're also helping this client follow through with that plan and adapt that plan that they've built to deal with these issues. Um, that doesn't necessarily change. The only difference is the tools you have with which to contribute to that process of um, build rapport, recognize issue, um, accept the presence of an issue and the need for a plan, and deal with said issue by forming and implementing a plan. You just have more tools with which to fulfill that process, or facilitate that process, rather. Okay, But these tools involve an integration of physicality. One critique of my beloved counseling profession is that we are not, we're not integrating or facilitating enough physicality among our clientele. So many behavioral, emotional issues can be helped greatly through increased healthy physical activity. And as counselors, we've just sort of written that off as something we don't do because it's a separate field of science when we really, 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 in my personal opinion uh, and professional opinion, we need to be integrating physicality into the counseling process. Um, if we do that, even our talking interventions will probably have a magnified synergetic result. The second thing is not that I'm encouraging necessarily another professional to do this, but I consider myself as a practitioner, as a fitness um, instructor, as a nutrition and fitness coach, as a counselor, I consider myself a living laboratory. And what that means is the mindfulness theories by which I practice counseling, the evolutionary psychology principles by which I practice counseling, are also what I practice in life. Um, meeting evolved challenges, adhering to those needs, adapting to the problems of modern behavior, these are all things that I personally and professionally attempt to do with my own life so that I have the experiential perspective to be of most use to the person in the room with me. 
um, or on the air with me in the case of you guys. So, in my personal and professional opinion, meeting your evolved needs as a person is a prerequisite to being capable of helping anyone else do so. Um, so that's sort of the overview of the idea of Therapy Evolved. We're using ancient biological processes, evolutionary adaptations, comparing them to the way we developed them in the context with which we used to live, and comparing that to the modern world in which we live today, and how sometimes we have problematic, problematic disconnects between the two. And what this podcast is going to do, every now and again, you're going to get me uh, harping on a topic for probably about an hour. This one's reaching close to two because it's an intro. Um, but also, I'm going to attempt to fit interviews with specialized experts or with people, even if they don't necessarily have the right set of letters behind their name, I'm going to interview people who are living laboratories, who have practiced meeting their evolved needs in particular ways, and have them kind of tell us together what it's like for them to live differently as a result of that. So, uh, guys, thank you for your patience. If you're still on after an hour and 40 minutes, I salute you. And I'm going to try and tighten up future episodes. But there it is, Therapy Evolved an overview, and where I'm planning to go from here. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today on the Therapy Evolve podcast. We at Paragon Wellness welcome your comments, questions, concerns, and suggestions for improvement. Feel free to contact us at paragoncounselor at gmail.com or drop us a comment at facebook.com slash paragonwellness. And always, please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps us become noticed for better or for worse. While I am a licensed professional counselor, these podcasts are not meant to be taken as clinical intervention. If you are experiencing considerable emotional or lifestyle difficulty, it is highly encouraged that you contact a local wellness professional. Thanks again, guys. See you next week.